Welcome back to the FreightWaves Global Supply Chain Summit. I'm John Kingston, FreightWaves Editor-at-Large, and I'm here for this fireside chat with two individuals, Tim Sensenig. He's the CEO of TMS First and TMS Force. TMS First is a transportation management system, as you can imagine, given that name. And TMS Force is a company's asset light 4PL. Also joining us is Rick Gonzalez. He's the Senior Vice President of Global Operations at TMS Force. So both of you, Thanks for joining us today at the Global Supply Chain Summit. Thanks, John. So I, uh, in preparation for this, uh, you and I, uh, all three of us had a little bit of a chat together. And and I was particularly, there's so much, so many interesting parts to your, your business, your two businesses, I wasn't sure where to start. But I'm going to date myself a little bit and go back to when the first time I heard the term asset light. And it really wasn't a good one. It was in connection with Enron, Jeff Skilling, who was the CEO of Enron at that point, used to talk about asset light all the time. Now, of course, their problems were not because they were asset light, but still that term has stuck around and you use it to describe uh, TMS Force, uh, your 4PL, as an asset light operation. So let's ask two questions of the both of you, don't care who answers. First of all, can you describe the differences between a 4PL and a 3PL? And can you also talk about what an asset light 3PL or 4PL, either one, what does it do? What what are the differences between a traditional uh, 3PL company that might not describe itself that way? Okay, so uh, if you don't mind, Tim, I'll go ahead and take this one. So I think that uh, when you're talking about a 3PL and a 4PL, they basically do operational tasks. So in the 3PL's case, what happens is, is that the customer decides what operational tasks are context and they outsource those to a provider. You know, that can be managing of transactions, that can be uh, managing tracking, thing, things of that nature from a cradle to grave perspective. When you up it up to a 4PL, the biggest difference is, is that a 4PL actually gets involved in the strategy of the customer. So not only do they outsource context, you know, capabilities and, and operational repetitive tasks, but there's also a strategy piece where we have a seat at the table and we help them achieve their vision through through a strategy employment. I see. And so do you have sort of longer term arrangements then with your customers than a 3PL might have? I mean, I think a 3PL, I'm sure some of the larger ones have long term relationships with certain shippers, certain other companies in the supply chain. It sounds to me like a 4PL by definition has to be a, a more sticky relationship because you're going to be doing strategy with them. I think that that's true. So, you know, typically you're looking at about a three to five year contract where, you know, the, there may be some um, language in it, in it where you're kind of reviewing as efficiencies happen, you know, the, the pricing changes, but the general terms and conditions um, don't change. What does change, however, because it is a strategic relationship is, the work instructions, the SOPs, and, and maybe even the scope of work itself, it may increase or decrease as time goes on, depending on what the strategy you're looking to achieve is. So what are some of the assets that a more traditional 3PL might have that you don't have, but even though you don't own them because you're an asset light operation, at a certain point in the supply chain, you're going to have to employ them. So how do you employ them? I, I'm thinking in particular, let's say warehouse space, which as we know in a lot of markets is at a real premium of late. So uh, you, do you face a market for the assets that you need to employ that can fluctuate pretty uh, pretty much? Yes, yeah, so, so basically what we have is a consortium of uh, partners, right? Um, and that consortium consists of, you know, 
the the yellow guys, the purple guys, the brown guys, as, as well as some other well-known brands. And it's also the carriers. It's also it could be directly with an airline. It can be directly with a vessel operator. Um, and that consortium, what it allows us to do is without us personally having assets, warehousing and things of that nature, we actually employ the best capabilities for whomever is the best in, in a particular geographic re region. And we employ their assets, their warehousing, all of, all of their labor in order to perform what we need. So when you kind of look at it, we're orchestrating everything that's going on and we're leveraging our relationships with this consortium to send financial benefit and execution benefit to the customer. So your, your advantage, your built-in advantage, I would assume then, is that you can go out and tap in the best assets that are out there instead of maybe being locked into some assets that you might own and maybe are underperforming. Are there disadvantages? I, I think always in terms of companies that expose themselves, I'm not going to call what you do exposing yourself to the spot market, but I think you know what I mean. Um, when you're exposed like that, uh, do you, are there times when uh, assets are tough to come by, prices spike, that sort of thing? So we, we actually have contractual agreements with the majority of our consortium. So we're not really fighting in a spot market type environment. When you go to the spot market, it could be some ad hoc uh, origin destination pair that pops up, or it can be a, uh, uh, an oversized or out-of-gauge shipment, which has to go out to the spot market. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think that because we have many people to go to and we're not really hamstrung on, you know, our organic assets, we can have, we're actually looking as a vertical across all these partners, you know, and, or, and you know, kind of letting them know, look, you, you know, you're going to be first, you're going to be second, you're going to be tertiary, but I have no, no um, obligation to go with you if you cannot deliver. Yeah, another good example of that is we have contracts and we're known for having typically 20% below anybody else, for example, outbound in the oil and gas market to any basin uh, in North America or, or worldwide. And that's because we're aggregating volume and we've done those discounts for the customer directly and we're not marking them up. That's a key. So let's talk about oil and gas because I know it's a very important part of your business, both for, I gather, probably both for TMS First and TMS Force. Uh, again, what I was struck by in looking at your company is your use of the term e-commerce. And I think if you ask, you know, 100 people on the street, what is e-commerce? They think about ordering something from Amazon or some kind of retailer. Uh, and the kind of things that get bought in the oil and gas business tend to be really big. And you think that maybe in the past, they were done on sort of a longer term contract. Maybe you bought it out of some big yard. So how does e-commerce in the oil and gas supply chain work? What kind of goods are you buying? I, I can't imagine you're buying like big drilling rigs, but there are smaller parts as well. Is it uh, how, how's e-commerce working in that field? Well, we have a customer that has over a million SKUs and uh, on the inbound, it was up to 15,000 different vendors. The core SKUs is about 300,000 vendors, excuse me, uh, SKUs, 3,000 uh, vendors, and a lot of it is bought online. Now, granted, you're not going to buy several miles of pipe online. That's just not going to happen. You're going to actually have a direct contract with the distributor and also the steel uh, foundry on that. But we were the first ones to really do this over six years ago. We started putting out mobile apps similar to uh, other names you would recognize uh, today in the marketplace. 
we've been taking our products right on any lat long position with last mile uh, coverage. We do consolidated shipments. We do it, you know, everything inbound, everything outbound, third party, private fleet, and also any way it can get there. So a lot of people, you know, think Hotshot is just expedited. Well, it is expedited, and this plays very much into e-commerce the same way. I need it out there same day. So usually for the last, call it 40 years, a guy throws whatever he can in the back of the truck, and he hauls, you know, his rear end and just takes off and goes. Well, that clearly is not a cost-effective way. So, you know, immediately we saved that customer 20%. We redu reduced their LTOs, LTL spend by 15% right off the bat without even doing anything. And then we initiated the system and took probably another 20% out of it. So, yes, we're in oil and gas, but we're also in e-commerce and omni-channel dealing with products coming in from China every day. All right, so let, let's again, let's let's kind of differentiate two companies, TMS First and TMS Forced. The oil and gas operations that you just spoke of, uh, are these uh, in a 4PL type of operation that you would get in uh, TMS Force? I got to keep these straight, you know, or or is you're using their, or you, where your transportation management system is being used in the oil patch by companies selling, you, know, you, you talked about hundreds of thousands of SKUs. I think we know that some parts in the oil patch can be, you know, that big. Right. Uh, where, where those are getting sold uh, via e-commerce. Where, where do you fit in the supply chain? On oil and gas, we're almost 100% IT only, meaning TMS First is all IT. There is nothing else in TMS First but IT. As far as rate negotiations and helping out there, we're definitely doing that. That comes through force. So if you think more of force from a standpoint, what is it that you need as a company to support your operations and we're not we're not the guy that comes in and, and desecrates an operation. We add value to that operation and make it execute. Whether you have those assets available or don't have those assets available, we make them available. So, you know, in that case, you know, we're moving anything from fluids to sand to material, you name it, uh, on our mobile apps, on our tablets, or it's sitting on a guy on a desktop. And it's it's it's. And it's coming in some many cases. It's coming through SAP on an e-commerce platform. How ugly did that oil and gas business get in the first half of 2020, and really into the second half as well? Um, I'm going to back up. 2014, we uh, ramped up with our uh, fracking operation, and um, you know we had the largest fracking uh, company. VP helped us build the uh, frac uh, applications. In 15, we thought we were going to close uh, 10 uh, contracts right around it, and we closed five contracts that had we didn't even see them coming. Makes no sense. That's typically what happens in a downturn. For us, this downturn, we totally, I think, almost annihilated what people would refer to as the old boy network of getting things done in oil and gas. At this point, you're fully digitizing in the marketplace, in an oil and gas process. And if you're not, you're going to see these companies fall behind. So we have actually seen more acceleration in this downturn than ever before with technology. And that's because you've had people lay off, on average, 20% of the workforce. So we pick up all that lack of inefficiency immediately.
let me let's let, let's move on now. Uh, your the 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 the, the, uh, the TMS system that you operate under TMS first. When we spoke, you talked about visibility that that was the the best asset that you said you could offer something nobody else did. Visibility from let's say a manufacturer in China all the way to the warehouse or final destination in the U.S. And what struck me about that is that in order to do that, you know, you can talk about AI and you can talk about machine learning and all these other things, but I think you also got to have some personal contacts. You know, that Rolodex still matters. Absolutely. So why don't you talk first about the TMS First system and your definition of visibility? Because it's a term that I hear thrown around a lot, and I don't necessarily always know that the definition is consistent across the board, that what one, what person's visibility is not necessarily another person's. And then talk about that Rolodex and why that's still important. The Rolodex will always be important. You're just not going to get away from it. Um, and the reality is it gets into more things like getting that connectivity approved and why we're going to do it. You know, can you go out and get a connectivity, a, strip, a steamship line directly? No, it's a, it's a royal pain. So as it relates to visibility, it is probably the hottest topic in the market right now, right? So what we do is we have no problem in connecting to a visibility partner, but Almost every single one of our customers does direct APIs, and we know you can't do direct API to everything either. You're going to do EDI, and you're going to have EDI and trucking different places forever because they're all sitting on, a lot of them are sitting on old systems. But back to your China point, if you don't know what you're doing in China, you're not going to get the connections to connect, connect to. So we are connected to trucks in China. We connect off the dock. We, that is our first mile. Our first mile isn't uh, when the boat is coming out of the harbor and that's everybody's getting the information off the boat. And we all know you can't uh, increase or decrease the speed of the boat. So we start at the manufacturer. So our customers, whether they're a retailer or a valve manufacturer, whatever they are, they know a better predictive analytics starting with first data. Everybody's been so focused on last mile. Last mile we've been doing forever. And first mile to me is the most important thing because that's right where your predictability comes. So if I'm a, if I'm a company, do I really want to share my data with everybody else? You know, and that's what's really going on with the visibility partners. So. Like, how do you compare the connectivity of a truck in China? You, you said you're, you're into those trucks in China. How do you compare the connectivity of an average truck in China with the average truck in the U.S.? I mean, I, I hate to use the term average truck in the U.S. because <laughs> the spectrum of, of, of technology that's out there is vast. But if you could find an average truck, how does it compare in the U.S. versus to that of China? China is way better. China pays their drivers through the, through the d devices. China knows where the, the trucks are. Um, you simply are not going to be driving that truck without without the uh, software in place uh, uh, under most cases. Anybody think we're still moving things by cart in China or just, you know, they're in old age. China is ahead of us from that standpoint, way more efficient, way more cost effective on the technology. And you can even get sensors that are way cheaper through China that are not illegal. Let's be really clear about these things that can do all the ambient temperature sensing that you need, machine learning hookup, and of course our platform all connects to that. 
Okay, only got, got about five minutes to go, and I've got at least two good questions I want to ask. I've got more than that, but we'll probably may only have time for two or three. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, in uh, in your 4PL, you do advertise it, you do air freight. Air freight's had a wild, had a wild ride in 2020 because a lot of uh, passenger, uh, passenger planes that didn't have any passengers tried to convert them to cargo. I'm wondering how much freight are you seeing that shifted to the air and whether you think it's going to stay in the air or is this just a temporary thing? We, that we saw a lot of freight, and I'll let Rick take this in a second, but what made this is back to contacts. We have contacts directly at the airlines and the forwarders. So we used our both bases in order to make sure we could secure the capacity as they pulled back capacity in international flights, because that was really the problem, right? And Rick can talk to U.S. flag carrying and things like that, which was very problematic. Yes, sir. How, how did they do in their shift from people to boxes or, or pallets? Yeah, so, so I don't know if you know this, but there were about 7,000 aircraft that were grounded, and a lot of those were either mothballed or sold off because of the COVID pandemic, right? Um, a lot of the airlines attempted to go to uh, a mode where they wouldn't take the seats out of the passenger lift and try to turn it into freighter lift. But in that scenario, you actually lose a lot of the capacity of the aircraft. So what we've seen happen actually is, is there's been an increase in the availability of um, freighter aircraft because um, a lot of the MVOCCs and a lot of folks are actually chartering and then they're selling that space off so that to, to help offset you know the situation. Um, did it really impact us? No. Um, what made it interesting, though, is that a lot of the airports closed. A lot of the uh, operations to offload the aircraft, the containers, that was completely turned on its head. And, you know, we just had operational issues that we had to, to solution. You know, so, for instance, um, you know, where before, from a DOD perspective, the FAR perspective, they're requiring P-1 aircraft, American flag, cradle to grave, right? So, you know, we, we had to devise a, a solution where we were actually going out and requesting in advance the ability to go P-2 because all of the American flagged aircraft were no longer landing in those geographies. And, and in some cases, they, the, the nations actually forbid American aircraft from landing in those geographies. All right. Um, I only really have time for one more question, and I'm going to ask Tim here. Uh, totally off this of what we've been talking about so far, looking at your LinkedIn profile, it describes your role with TMS First and TMS Force, but it also talks about your extensive activity with an organization called Redeem. And I know you're very proud of the work you do with Redeem. Can you talk about this initiative? Sure. It's really the core of what we're about. I mean, we are a family organization. Everybody is very close-knit in this company, and we are global. Redeemed is the most successful uh, recovery program out there in North America that I am aware of for providing recovery for women particular, but we'll uh, also do males, but we haven't done to date, for recovering in sex trafficking. So a lot, there's been a lot about this this year and we're, we're grateful for it. Yes, we have a golf outing February 22nd with Brett White, the pro, that's also going to be there. But we need to, we're, we're an eight bed facility. We need to get to like a hundred beds. You know, uh, this is a $40 billion problem just in the United States. And everybody thought it went away with COVID. Guess what? It was still happening. So when, what people need to know is your child could be taken at four years old and put into sex trafficking. It's real. The average age is 12. 
and it takes a minimum of a year, if not two years, to get a woman through recovery and just to get back to work at Starbucks, to feel okay about going to Starbucks. It's 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 really a, a sad situation. So we are definitely saving lives, and uh, we give a portion of our uh, our profits to them, and we are uh, grateful to be there to help them. Okay. Uh, one last question, either of you. Just I'll just take one answer. That's all we have time for. Uh, a big trend in 2021 you think you're going to see coming out of the pandemic uh, in supply chain that maybe a lot of people aren't talking about? Anybody want to throw out a guess? Rick? Visibility. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So I, so I think, I think uh, actually Tim touched on this a lot. You know, because of a lot of the downsizing, people working from home and things of that nature, uh, digitization of the supply chain has actually become paramount in 2021 and into the future. So the more you can take uh, these tasks away from uh, and turn them into machine language and, and turn them into automation, the more efficient things are going to get. And, you know, because there's that disconnection now uh, as a society that we have where everybody's working remotely and there's not that grouping that they used to have, having the uh, same information across multiple different people to do the job is going to be very important in 2021 in the future. I would to totally agree on that. And and what I, what I would want to say something as another thing of Mr. Momer here is real time. Real time is less than three seconds. You can have all the visibility in the world. And if you're not executing in real time, less than five seconds, let's say, then you're sitting on an old platform that's in the cloud, not really functioning. And that's what COVID is bringing out of this is if you, you you haven't been able to function, that's why you're paying higher prices. That's exactly why you're paying higher prices. It's beyond just a container problem. Yeah, on that that, it, that question of digitalization and, and working from home, you think about all the communication that went on in brokerage offices just over the transom, and right now that's gone. And uh, rebuilding that is tough. Rebuilding that stuff with a, with a different, completely different channel. So anyway, we do want to thank our guests today on the FreightWave Global Supply Chain Summit. We've had with us both from TMS First and TMS Force, Tim Sensenig, he's the CEO, and Rick Gonzalez, the Senior Vice President of Global Operations for TMS Force. I've been your host for this fireside chat, John Kingston. Please stick with us at the FreightWave's Global Chain Supply Summit. <laughs>